You're listening to Pastor David Gusick preach through the Book of Acts at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. The theme from the Book of Acts is Spirit-Driven. Father, bless your word to us this morning. Lord, help me to um, speak in a way that gets me through this this morning. And give us your grace. Give us, Lord, uh, a message from your word this morning. We trust that you will. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, such as voice I have to give to you, we're picking it up this morning in the middle of Acts chapter 15. And so if I sound a little more subdued this morning, a little bit moderate in my tone, it's not because uh, this section of the book of Acts is any less exciting. This is a thrilling section of Acts. I'm just trying to tell myself, calm down as I'm going through it. Now, last week in the book of Acts, what we saw was that certain men from Judea, from Jerusalem, no doubt, went all the way from Judea up to Antioch to tell them in that church that Gentiles had to become Jews before they could be saved. Gentiles could be saved. They just had to become Jews first and come under the Mosaic law, most specifically under circumcision, but that was just sort of the entry point for coming under all the Mosaic law. Well, Paul and Barnabas very strongly disagreed with these certain men from Judea, and they debated the matter, but the matter wasn't settled in the debate that happened at Antioch. So they came down to Jerusalem and had a big church council with all the apostles, except, of course, for the uh, uh, James of Alphaeus, the one who had already gone on to be with the Lord. But the, the apostles were there. The elders were there. And as they gathered together, they hashed this out. First, they argued a lot. Then Peter spoke. Then Paul and Barnabas spoke. And then finally, James spoke. And he said, this is how it's going to be. We're not going to trouble these Gentiles. And, and it was decided. Now, in the whole aftermath of that, they decided to write a letter. With that letter, we pick it up here at verse 22. It says, Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who is also called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. I love that phrase right there in verse 22 where it says, it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church. In other words, they came to a unified understanding of this. And isn't that remarkable? Isn't that remarkable when, when Christians who had once disagreed, who had once disagreed very strongly, where they can come together in love and be convinced of the truth? Man, I just think that sometimes that's a greater miracle than the most hardened... This is a greater miracle than Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, isn't it? A stubborn Christian being persuaded by the Scriptures and being persuaded by love. And this is what happened here. But we talked a lot about that last week. I'm not going to belabor that point other than just to say that in verse 22, it tells us that they decided to send two men from the Jerusalem congregation up to Antioch and some of these other churches to bring the good news of what happened. And they're going to send them with this letter that begins at verse 23. So let's take a look at the letter together. It says, they wrote this letter by them. The apostles, the elders, and the brethren to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, 
It seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and also to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. Okay, so verse 23 begins a letter. It's the letter of the official findings from the Jerusalem Council. <coughs> Excuse me. So, here they are. They're, they're going, and basically what they're saying is that they shouldn't feel themselves obligated to this teaching that previously went up from these certain men from Judea, from Jerusalem. I kind of like how they disassociate themselves from those guys in the letter. They say, hey, those guys didn't come from us. We didn't send them. They went off on their own accord. But anyway, we've disputed their their doctrine. We figured it out, and and we've decided, no, we're going to tell you to do different. Now, I want you to notice one thing. In verse 23, this says that it's to the brethren who are the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. This letter was written specifically to areas where there would be churches filled with both Christians and Jews. And this is a very important point, because there's going to be four commands given at the end of the letter that we're going to talk about in just a few minutes. Those four commands are very important. Do you remember last week? I just told you, well, we'll talk about that next week. Well, this is next week already. We're going to talk about those four commands, and those four commands need to be understood in their context And most notably, the context is this, is that it was written to these specific congregations at the specific times. These four instructions, and please wait till I explain them, because I'll get to them. Those four instructions should not be taken to be universal for all the church in all times. This was written to specific congregations. In any regard, I love how it puts it there in verse 28, where it simply says, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. You know what I love about that? is just the way that it seems like they're making decisions together with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that beautiful? Their relationship with the Holy Spirit, both individually and communally, because this was sort of a communal decision, even though James, speaking on behalf of the whole group, sort of laid it all out and summarized the heart of the group. And they're just flowing with the Holy Spirit. I want that. I want that in our congregation. I want us to be so in flow with the work of the Holy Spirit that when we decide something together, we could just, well, yeah, it seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit. Not, not that we're just saying anything we want to do is what the Holy Spirit wants to do. I'm not trying to imply that at all. I got to tone it down a little bit here. <laughs> you know, I put in one of those numbing cough drops, you know, one of those ones right before. So my mouth feels a little funny. It's... No, but I, I think you understand what I mean by this, right? What I understand, what, what I'm trying to say is that we want to be so in tune with the Holy Spirit. We want to be led by Him, guided by Him, that we could legitimately say, yeah, it seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit. We made this decision together, being guided by the Spirit of God, and that's how He's leading us. I just find that to be a precious phrase there. But then in verse 29, that's the verse where they tell them, okay, now... This is what you have to abstain from. You need to abstain from these things. Now, these are really just the same four things that James mentioned 
Back in chapter 15, verse 20. Can we read that verse together here? Uh, 15, verse 20. But that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. The letter puts them in a little different order, but it's the same four things. And I just want to quickly run through those four things because I think it's important and relevant to us today. Not the command so much itself, but the principle behind it. First of all, he says, verse 29, abstain from things sacrificed to idols. He goes, what's the deal behind that? Well, I'll tell you, it's really very simple, though very distant from us in the ancient world. In the ancient world at this time in the first century, when you went down to the meat market to buy meat, Let's say you're trying to carve up some carne asada or something like that for a nice barbecue or a little piece of tri-tip. You go down to the meat market, that meat had almost always, not always, but almost always had already been sacrificed to an idol. You see, because basically the meat markets and the butcher shops were at the temples of pagan idols. And, And this is how it worked. You know what they did a lot of at pagan temples? Sacrifice. And when they would sacrifice a cow or a steer before the Lord, there was a lot of meat left over, right? And so to raise money for the temple or the idol or whatever, all that, they would help and they would contribute money for that. And the money would go buying the meat towards the support of the whole operation. And so almost always, if you were going to go down to the butcher shop, that meat had been sacrificed to an idol. Now, what's very interesting is as we follow through the New Testament, this was a huge point of controversy for Christians in New Testament times. Some of them said this. They said, you know what? There's no such thing as Zeus. I don't care if this, I, if this meat has been sacrificed to Zeus. Zeus is a figment of your imagination. You may as well sacrifice the man of moon. I don't care. It's a good piece of tri-tip. I'm eating it. <laughs> there were other Christians who said, Good heavens, we're supporting idolatry when we buy and eat this meat. We can't do this. No way. That meat is polluted because it's been offered to an idol. You can't do it. And there were legitimate differences of Christian opinion and conscience on this. Well, as you might imagine, a Christian from a Jewish background would be more sensitive to this, right? A Christian from a Jewish background might be saying, well, no, I'm not touching that piece of meat. It was sacrificed to an idol. So what does James tell him? He says, listen, you Christians in these cities where you rub shoulders with a Jewish community, both in your church and outside of your church, don't eat that meat sacrificed to an idol. You're going to offend a Jewish person. Just don't do it. Okay, what's next? Verse 29 again, that you abstain from blood from things strangled. That's two items, but I'm linking them together. From blood and from things strangled is blood meant, well, they would prepare things from the blood of animals. Have you ever had that blood sausage or blood? There's some people that like it. Man, that stuff is. Anyway, there's some people who eat it and they would eat it in the ancient world, right? Don't eat that, James. And from things strangled, you go, what possible difference can that make? Strangled has to do with the kosher preparation of food. Because did you know that kosher dietary regulations don't have to do only with what food you eat? But for example, if it's an animal, how that animal is slaughtered. And if you're going to prepare something kosher, you never strangle it. You cut its jugular vein first and bleed it out. Because more blood leaves the animal. And God commanded in the Levitical law, he said... That, that you shouldn't eat blood. And therefore, part of kosher dietary regulations was you bleed the animal as much as possible before it finally dies 
Therefore, you don't strangle you. So what does James tell them in the letter? James and the council say, don't eat the meat sacrificed to idols. Don't eat the blood and don't eat things that have been uh, strangled. Eat kosher food because it won't offend the Jewish people in your congregation and it won't offend the Jewish people in the community and you want to reach them for Jesus Christ. Then finally, this is the third thing, verse 29. This is the one that, that messes up a lot of people, but I just need you to understand it clearly. They say, and from sexual immorality. You say, well, didn't, don't all Christians know that you're supposed to abstain from sexual immorality? What, was there a whole group of Christians up in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia that thought, well, it's just fine. We can engage in sexual immorality. That's why, No, that's not the issue at all. It's almost certain from the context here that what's being spoken of is not sexual conduct outside of marriage, which Christians all over the Roman Empire understood to be wrong. That's not the issue. Nobody had to tell them that was wrong. They understood it was wrong. Can you imagine Paul and Barnabas going around to different churches and teaching these Gentiles? Yeah, it doesn't matter if you commit sexual immorality. And then now having to take it back from the Jerusalem Council? Nobody thinks that for a moment. No, no, no. This is probably what it had to do with. The type of sexual immorality that they're talking about is probably linked back to the same Levitical law that would cover meat sacrificed to idols, eating blood, things strangled. It probably has to do with marriage prohibitions that would be okay, excuse me, the, thing, the practices would be okay in the pagan world, but prohibited in the Jewish world, such as marrying certain close relatives. In the Jewish world, they might say, you can't marry a second cousin, you can't marry something like that. In the pagan world, they might not have any problem with that. But in the Jewish world, they say, no, based on the Levitical law, we can't do that. And so it's probably talking about specific marriage practices that would be generally accepted in the pagan world, but really frowned upon in the Jewish world. And they say, don't do that. And what's the whole purpose behind all of these things? What's the whole purpose behind all four of these laws uh, of saying, don't eat meat sacrificed idols, don't eat blood, don't eat things strangled, don't practice this kind of sexual immorality that, that might be okay in the pagan world, but is prohibited among the Jews? It's just telling this, listen, you Gentile Christians, you are saved by what Jesus Christ did for you. You don't have to come under the law of Moses. And it's like they wanted to shout it as loud as they could. You don't have to come under the law of Moses. But you know what you do have to come under? The law of love. And so while the law of Moses would never tell you, don't eat that meat that was sacrificed to an idol, the law of love says, why would I needlessly offend my Jewish brother or sister who sits right next to me in the church meeting? Why would I bring pork chops to the church potluck, right? And say, hey, I got the liberty. I can do this. And if you Jewish people don't like it in the congregation, well, just you don't have to eat it. Now, that could be the attitude, right, among these Gentile believers. The, the Gentile believers could have the attitude, I've got the liberty. I'm free in Jesus. And you know what? You do have the liberty. You are free in Jesus. But let me tell you what you're free to do. You're free to love your brother or sister in Jesus Christ. You're free to act in such a way that will not needlessly offend people in the community. And I think this is very important for us to understand, right? Because in our day and age, we're faced with lots of opportunities where I think we can needlessly offend people in the community. Now, one thing we don't mind offending people in the community about is the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? This is it. This is Jesus and who he is. Jesus said this, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's what Jesus said. And if that offends you, if that makes you say, well, I can't believe how close-minded and intolerant, all I'm saying is, that's what Jesus said. That's not what I said, but I'm happy to tell you what Jesus said. I think it's very important for us to say, yes, this is the case. But other things? Other things? No. Other things we say, listen, I believe what I believe. But I'm not going to needlessly offend you over this matter, over this principle. No, I want you to hear the word from Jesus Christ. And friends, I think this is a huge issue. The idea was that it was important that Gentile believers did not act in a way that would offend the Jewish community in these cities and destroy the church's witness among them. The decision was clear. You don't have to become Jewish in order to become a Christian. That decision was very clear. But it was also very clear this. What are you going to do with the freedom that you have in Jesus Christ? Are you going to love other people? Let me, let me just give you a little challenge right here. And, and maybe it's a very easy question. I'm not trying to ask this in some dramatic way, like I'm really going to nail you guys with this question. I think some of you can answer this question very easily. For others of you, it'll be more difficult. But the simple question is, when's the last time you laid down a freedom out of love for somebody else? In Jesus, you're free to do it. You are. You're free to do this. You're free to do that. But out of love for somebody else, you laid that freedom down. Now, isn't that an outstanding measure of how valuable we consider love and how valuable we consider freedom in our life? Let's face it. We are, and I say this in a happy way, we are Americans. And we, through our culture, through our upbringing, through this, we value independence and freedom. And I think that that's a good thing. But I do think there's a potential downside to it. And I'll tell you what the potential downside is, is that we value our freedom above loving other people. You may have the freedom to do certain things, but friends, how do you do with love? Are you willing to give up things out of love for your brother or sister in this congregation? Are you willing to give up things out of love that would demonstrate something to the community and say, listen, I love you and I love this community? What will we do that will curtail our freedom, not in the sake of legalism? Not for the sake of legalism. I'll say it one more time, just for emphasis. Not for the sake of legalism, but out of love for other people. That was the true mark here. And friends, this is something that I think each of us has to deal with in our walk before God. Do you realize the amazing freedom that we have in Jesus Christ? It is. He sets us free. And we're not declared Christians because of how good we are. We're not declared Christians because we keep the Ten Commandments or another list of rules. We're not declared Christians for any other reason than we put our faith in Jesus Christ who saves us. It's His work on the cross that is our salvation. That's what makes us followers of Him. Let me tell you, in that there's tremendous freedom, but there's also the responsibility of love. You got the freedom. Now add to it the glorious love of God, and you'll see God do some amazing things. Well, they end the letter there. Verse 29, they say, farewell. Letter ended. The issue was settled right there in the infancy of Christianity. And for all time, we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not by conformity to the law. 
not by that kind of obedience. No, that kind of obedience comes in our life as a result of true faith rather than being what determines whether or not we're actually Christians. And that's a great principle to establish, but they also also established another principle here, and that principle is simply this, that Christians must never use their liberty to needlessly offend other Christians or to keep other people from the kingdom of God. That's how it should be for us. Okay, now, verse 31. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Isn't that great? Can you just picture this in your mind? Saul and Barnabas go away to Jerusalem from Antioch to settle this issue. Now, can you imagine what it was like when they... Okay, a guy comes in here and he says, All right, uh, three quarters of you aren't saved. And there's a big argument about it. And they say, well, we're going to decide this issue in Jerusalem. We're going to leave. And so they're gone for two months, right? Because it's a long trip. All that two months, can you imagine? Am I saved? Am I not saved? Am I right with God? Am I not right with God? Finally, they come back and they say, okay, we got a letter to read, everybody. That would be the most packed day at church ever, right? I'm coming just to find out whether or not I'm actually saved. They come together. They read the contents of the letter. And did you see right what it said there in verse 31? It said, when they read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. They were so relieved to see that the principle of grace had been preserved and that they were right with God after all. They were made pure by faith. And so the work of the gospel just continues on. Look at it now, verse 32. It says, now Judas and Silas themselves being prophets also exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, (coughs) excuse me, They were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, excuse me, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So these two fellows, Judas and Silas, who came with them, they stayed for a while. Silas remained. Judas went back. And I love how it states it there in verse 35. Teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Man, that's just where we encountered the work at that church at Antioch. So many chapters before. Nothing that came up hindered the work of God. It just continued along. And this is what I love about a healthy church, right? A healthy church. It's not like it never sees problems. Good heavens, no. There's a significant problem here in Antioch. But a healthy church works through it and works beyond it. And the work of God continues on through that congregation. That's exactly what we see going on here in Antioch. Until, and you know, it would be kind of the ominous music playing in the background now if we were making the movie out of this. Verse 36. Verse 36. One of the most interesting sections in the gospel, excuse me, in the book of uh, Acts. Verse 36. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we've preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Isn't that a great idea? Would it be, I mean, they're remembering that first missionary journey. Can you imagine them sitting around and talking about, man, do you remember when we were in Lystra and they started sacrificing to us? They, they said you were uh, uh, Zeus and I was Hermes. Do you remember that? Oh, man, do you remember when they tried to murder me outside of Lystra and they left me for dead? Boy, wasn't that something. And they're talking about Lystra and Derby and Iconium and Antioch and Pisidia and all these... Boy, what are they? And then after a while, they start thinking, you know what? What about those guys? Now, look, what a difference in the world today, right? 
What would they do today? They would pick up their phone and they'd text them right away. You know, hey, how are you guys in Antioch doing? What's happening in Lystra? Right? They would just do the thing. Can you, can you even imagine? I mean, I don't know if I'm speaking to anybody under 30. You can't even imagine. <laughs> you look at somebody my age and you think, you know, we grew up like Abe Lincoln riding with coal on the back of a shovel or something. You know, and here, you know, you don't even know how, how unconnected the world was at one time. You can think back here. Right, you may as well be on the dark side of the moon if you're in Iconium, right? And, and these guys are in Antioch. I mean, it's a huge, you don't know anything about what's going on with them. Nothing. And so they're just thinking, oh, I wonder how those guys are doing. And wow, I mean, we, we were only there a few weeks, but they really got it the few weeks we were there. They knew to teach the scriptures. They knew to teach Jesus. But are they getting it? You can just imagine how these conversations go, right? And Paul says, listen, let's go back. Let's go back. Let's talk to those guys. Let us go back and visit our brethren. Now, I love this about Paul because you know that Paul was totally into pioneer type evangelism, right? Excuse me. You know that Paul was into pioneer evangelism. He was all about that. But nevertheless, Paul was also into discipleship among believers. He wasn't just about Let's bring as many into the kingdom as we can. Although he did want to bring as many into the kingdom as he could. But just like you and I, I think that he had a passion to see individual Christian lives go deeper than ever before. I hope you got that passion. I think God's stirring that passion up in me all over again. For my personal life, for our staff, for this congregation. Lord, we, we just want to take what you're doing and in some aspect of discipleship, just dive down into it more than ever before. I mean, isn't this what we should be doing in the Christian life? Taking what God has done among us and finding a way to extend it, to deepen it, to strengthen it, to, to sink down the, the, the pillars and the posts and the foundations even stronger. This was Paul's heart. I'll put it to you this way. Paul did not only have the heart of a spiritual obstetrician, right? Bringing children into the world, right? But he also had the heart of a spiritual pediatrician, seeing those little babies and the Lord grow up and grow strong. And that's exactly what he went. Let's go back and visit those guys. And they wanted to go see how they were doing. So what happens? Verse 37 sounds like a great idea. Best idea ever. Verse 37. <clears throat> now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia. And who had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas and Mark sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended to the brethren by the, to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Whoa! Did you just read what I read? Right there, verse 37. There's this fellow John called Mark. Now, don't get upset because previously in the book of Acts, like in Acts chapter 13, this fellow had been called John mostly. But here, John, who is called Mark, just so we know we're talking about the same guy. By the way, this is the same guy who wrote the gospel of Mark. John, who is also called Mark. We, we often call him in biblical context, John Mark, because sometimes he's called John. Sometimes he's called Mark. We figure if we call him John Mark, we cover both ends right there. John Mark. This fellow 
He went with them on this first missionary journey. He went with them up to a time. And then what did he do? He said, nope, no more. And just like our text tells us, Paul insisted that they should not take them with them, the one who departed from them in Pamphylia. Paul said, no, he's not coming. But I love the contrast. Look at verse 37. Barnabas was determined. That's verse 37. Verse 38, but Paul insisted. Now, when you got one brother who's determined and another brother who's insisting and they're not seeing eye to eye, these guys aren't budging, are they? Barnabas says, well, I'm determined we're going to do this. And Paul says, well, I insist that we do not do it. Barnabas, I am determined that he's going to come with me. Paul says, I insist that he doesn't. And if he goes with you, then I'm not going with you. And friends, this contention, what does it say in verse 39? It says, the contention became so sharp. Okay, part of me doesn't even want to be reading this. It's like, I want to think of Paul and Barnabas in these romantic, overly heroic ways, right? I want to think of these guys as being, well, they're like spiritual supermen, and it's just love all the time from these guys. But can I tell you, forgive me, Lord, and forgive me, Paul and Barnabas, if I'm not reading this right. But they were wrong here, were they not? I mean, somebody was wrong. They probably were both wrong, right? Whenever you got a couple brothers, can I read it to you again? The contention became so sharp. What does that mean? They were yelling at each other, folks. There was like the, the, the anger in the room. There was a really bitter argument over this. So much so that they, de- we're not working together. That's it. I'm done with you. But you know what, Paul? God bless you. You do your thing wherever you want to do it. I'm taking John Mark. Because you know what? Because God doesn't give up on people, Paul. Whoa. Paul answers back, oh, God doesn't give up. Well, he gave up on us, didn't he? Fine, if he wants to serve the Lord, let him serve the Lord right here in Antioch. He's not coming with me and he's not going to bail on me again. Back and forth, oh my heavens. You get a headache if you were there watching it. You just think, who's right? Who's wrong? Well, you know, on the one hand, I don't want to be reading, but on the other hand, isn't this really good for us to read? Earlier in this chapter... Verse 2 and verse 7, it says that there was no small dispute over this great doctrinal issue of how the Gentiles get saved. And on that, we're going, yes, Paul, stick to your guns. Yes, Paul, be Mr. Stubborn for the gospel. Now we want to say, Paul, what are you doing? But you see, the same stubbornness that was so gloriously used of God for standing up for the truth could sometimes get twisted just a little bit, right? And now it's being used in sort of a wrong way. And the contention becomes very sharp. And we just sort of hang our heads. It's a train wreck going on right in front of our eyes. But between Paul and Barnabas. So much so that verse 39 says, Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. Now, one thing you should know, according to Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, Barnabas and John Mark were cousins. That might explain sort of the depth of this is my family. This guy's my flesh and blood. I'm not giving up on him. Well, Paul says, forget it. You're just showing favoritism to your family. Back and forth, back and forth. They decided to split it up. And this most amazing missionary team of Paul and Barnabas, they're split by what? By fighting. Because they couldn't come to agreement. Because they couldn't come to a common 
understanding of love and grace in a particular situation. It says in verse 39 that they parted from one another. Paul and Silas, we'll talk more about Silas later, go off in one direction. Barnabas and Mark, they go off in another direction. Now, you know what? I think this was a really difficult thing for these two guys. You ever, you ever been in a sharp contention with another believer? It's really bad, isn't it? Don't you hate that? You know, you like both staring off in a duel, waiting for who's going to blink, waiting for who's going to be, you know, more faithful to the Lord or less faithful to the Lord or however you want to categorize it. It's a very, very difficult thing. But I'll tell you what the really good news is. There's no doubt that God used this division, right? I mean, did, did Barnabas and John Mark do a great job? I'm sure they did. You know, we almost would want to hear that it was disaster for one of these teams, right? Because it would comfort us feeling, well, God was with one of them. No, you know what? God probably blessed both of these teams. And we know he blessed Paul and Silas because we're going to read about them shortly as we continue on in the way. But you know what's really glorious about this is that God used this, but it didn't make it right. I think that Paul and Barnabas didn't have to have this contention. I say, well, wasn't it good that they split up? Friends, if they were really listening to the Holy Spirit, don't you think the Holy Spirit could have told them? Barnabas, why don't you take John Mark and go to, to Cyprus? Paul, why don't you take Silas and go up the Syria and Antioch way? Why don't you do that? But they weren't listening to the Holy Spirit, right? They were, at least in some measure, these two great heroes of the faith, they were listening to the flesh. And it got so bitter. But you know what I think is wonderful? Later on, Paul says some wonderful things about John Mark, right? He says, he's a good man. He's useful to me in ministry. Basically, I like this guy. He writes about Colossians 4 and Philemon 2. And in 2 Timothy 4, he all mentions John Mark in a positive way. God did a good work in bringing reconciliation between the two. And as verse 41 says, they went off on their work, strengthening the churches. Okay, great. But you know, they only came back to this relationship. You have to figure somewhere along the way, Paul and Barnabas had to forgive each other. You know, there's always kind of a phasing that these things go through, right? At first, what's it like? It's like, I'm so right and they're so wrong. Yeah, I'm happy to have forgiveness in this relationship when they come back to me crawling on their knees, begging for the forgiveness they so richly need. Right? That's the first phase of it, right? And then how does it work from there? Well, if your heart is filled with the grace of the Lord, after a while, your heart softens, doesn't it? Your heart softens and, and maybe some experiences and some time goes by and you're able to see things a little bit more from that other person's perspective. And, and God just has a way of softening your heart, hopefully by grace. I'll never forget a great story I heard about Charles Spurgeon when he was a very young minister. He came to London and there was a man who was just filled with bitterness and complaints against Spurgeon's predecessor. And he was just really venting it out to young Spurgeon, saying, oh, this guy did this and this guy did that. And he really wanted to take Spurgeon's side, or he wanted Spurgeon to take his side in the whole dispute. Well, Spurgeon just paused and go, whoa, could you just stop for a minute? I've heard all what you had to say. And he said, sir, didn't this all happen a good long time ago? Because you know, it happened 10, 15, 20 years before. 
And the man grew very indignant. And this is what he said to the young Spurgeon. He said, Sir, time doesn't change facts. And he was so convinced by the facts that he was right and everybody else was wrong. And they all need to come groveling to him for whatever forgiveness would be dished out. And Spurgeon, young Spurgeon, I can't believe he was this wise at such a young age. This is what he said to the man. He said, you're right that time doesn't change facts. But when a man is walking in the grace of Jesus Christ, he changes over time. Why haven't you become any more forgiving in that time that's gone by? I guess that's the question I I pose to you here at the end of this message. You know, there's some wonderful all-purpose subjects that pastors can always go to. Right? Prayer. Does anybody need less prayer in their Christian life? You can always talk about prayer and resonate, right? A loving God's word. We all need more of that, right? You can always get... But I'll tell you one thing that resonates with God's people everywhere because it's just where we're at as people. Forgiveness. There's probably somebody in your life right now that you really need to forgive. Or you're struggling with right now in the battle to keep forgiving them. You see, you had an experience. You say, okay, yes, I forgive them, yes. And then you got really discouraged because the next day, the same bitter feelings kept welling up inside all over again, right? You need to realize, I need to keep forgiving that person. I need to stay in that place of forgiveness. And listen, I know it. I know how right you are and how wrong they are. Okay, I know it all. Right? You're right. You're all right and they're all wrong. And then I think back to how Jesus forgave me. You want to know how Jesus forgave me? Jesus wanted to be reconciled so bad with me that this is what Jesus said. Jesus said, David, you've done all the wrong in this relationship and I haven't done any wrong. Isn't that correct? And you know what Jesus said? Jesus said, David, put All the guilt for what happened on me. I'll bear it. And that's what he did on the cross, did he not? When Jesus Christ hung on the cross as a payment for our sins, was that not his way of saying, things aren't right between you and me? And you know what, frankly, you're all the blame for it. But I want you to put the blame on me and I'll bear it on the cross. I'll pay the price. Forgiveness is never accomplished without the payment of a price. But Jesus shows us that sometimes it's the person who's doing the forgiving that needs to pay the price. Maybe you are right, and I don't mean to diminish that at all. Maybe you desperately, desperately hear this morning, you need to forgive somebody. And won't you let the Lord God stir your heart right now and give to them something that you've been unwilling to give or you've only been able to give it inconsistently thus far. This never could have gone forward with Paul and Barnabas unless there was forgiveness. Now's the time for you to forgive somebody in your life that you need to. Do you know why? Because that's how richly Jesus forgives us.